Have you ever been there? Well, this morning we want to talk about patience. If you have your Bibles, please open them to James chapter 5. We're looking at verses 7 through 12 this morning. And as, as I mentioned, we're talking about patience. And let me ask you a couple questions. How many of you would describe yourself as a patient person? And uh, in case that might be a bit much, let me rephrase the question this way. Would your spouse or someone who knows you well describe you as someone who is patient? Or let's go with the third option. How many of you would say in some situations patience isn't an issue, but in other situations I've got some work to do? Anybody here with that? We do, don't we? The Bible says a lot about patience. In Proverbs 14 it says, A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. Proverbs 15 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. In Romans, Paul says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction. Corinthians 13 says, love is what? It's patient. And in Galatians 5, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And finally, another passage says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another, giving, making allowances for each other's struggles and problems. Hudson Taylor would tell those who wanted to be missionaries that there were three indispensable requirements if you wanted to be a missionary in a foreign field. And he said, this is the character traits that you need. He said, you need patience, patience, and more patience. And I would add to that that I think Hudson Taylor is right, and I would also say that if you want a growing and fulfilling marriage, if you want to be a cooperative team member in the, wherever you work, or if there are areas of your life that involve people or change, you are going to need at times some patience. This morning, James 5, let's begin reading in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear... Either by, either by heaven or by earth by, or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now we know that James is writing to people who are suffering. They have left their homes. They have left their countries. They are not living the life that they thought they would live. And you know, all of us have something of that in our lives. We have an idea, a picture of how life is going to play out, and very seldom does that happen perfectly. And because of their situation, become of our situation, the reality is that we are in a place where patience is something where we often need to grow in. And just as James is telling these Jewish Christians to be patient and that their patience is an outgrowth of their relationship with Christ, and that's an important point, friends, patience doesn't just happen. Patience is developed as you and I grow in our relationship with God. Because of our commitment and relationship to Jesus, we are to be known as people who are patient, people who are growing in that area of our life. In other words, we're not going backward. We're saying, God, in my tr as I trust you, 
Would you help me to grow in patience? See, we can be successfully patient if we trust. We're going to get into more about that a little bit later. To start off with, I am to be patient when, on your outline. In the first part of verse 7, James makes a general statement, and the statement he makes is, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is kind of a general statement leading into the whole passage we're looking at this morning. And here James is saying that we are going to need patience for one thing or another until Jesus returns. In other words, until God makes perfect, until he totally transforms our own thoughts and our own emotions, until our culture is transformed from a place of insecurity to an environment of peace and security, we will be tempted, we will experience people, we will experience circumstances that will challenge our ability to stay calm and carry on. Our patience will be tested, and let me suggest this that we will not always pass the test. There are times when we are going to be at a difficult place. We are going to be tired. We're going to be worn out. We're going to be stressed. And in those situations, we are going to have to say, we're going to see how, how our patience has been developed in our lives. Last Tuesday evening, I came home from our trustee meeting, and Joy asked me to help her with something. And to put it plainly, I wasn't in top form. And I was short and snippy as we taped a box back together. Well, we finished the box, and shortly after that, I went to bed. And and as I was laying there, I'm praying, and I'm kind of going over my day, doing a bit of a spiritual review. I'm saying, God, use me, change me. And then I heard the Holy Spirit say me, tell me, says, before you go to sleep, get up and apologize to joy. Well, that was not something I was expecting or necessarily wanting to hear. So I did my best to figure out a way to convince myself that that activity was not necessary. And then after a minute or so of trying to do that and not coming up with something that worked, I realized that this was an obedience issue, not something I could rationalize away. And so I went into the next room and I apologized for being impatient, snippy, and short with her. And then she said to me, well, why, why did you do it? And I said this, I said, I did it because I've been stained by the sin of past generations and was unable to overcome my historical tendency of being a jerk. (laughs) Well, I didn't really say that. I simply said I was wrong and I messed up and I'm sorry. And she looked at me and said, you're forgiven. And we were once again good. But see, impatience is not something that we're always tested on when we're in top shape, when we're not in a place where we can resist easily. And we can count on a couple things, on our patience being tested, and when we blow it, for God to call us to go and resolve and make right what we might have messed up. Number one on your outline, I am to be patient when my circumstances are uncontrollable. Verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Here he is saying that if you are a farmer, you will do better if you are able to be patient in waiting for the rain that's needed so the crops will grow and mature. And I've talked, been in conversation with many of our farmers here, and we got the early rains. We're still waiting for the late rains for the rest of the crops to mature. And the question we have, based on what James is saying, is how much control do any of us have on the weather? The weather is predictable, and it's not up to us. Last year, hardly any rain. This year, we got the early rains. We're still waiting for the late rains. And what James is saying, he's using the life situation 
of a one who farms to say that we are going to have situations, you and I, whether we are farmers or whatever we do, we are going to have situations in our life, situations that we cannot control, and when we do, we need to pray and ask and hope that God, that we are going to know God well enough, that our trust in Him, our stability in Him, our security in Him, our belief that our God is good will help us to be patient in the midst of those situations that we would like to change so we could naturally feel better. When it gets to these uncomfortable situations, uncontrollable situations that really affect our lives, we have two options. We can say, God, use this as an opportunity to grow my faith, to enhance my trust, to deepen my ability to know that you have this situation, or we can worry and be distraught and allow that churning to start happening in our life. God is telling us in those situations that are uncontrollable, be patient, trust God, and surrender the situation to Him, knowing that He is trustworthy and He cares for you. Number two, the second time you and I are to be patient is when my suffering is unpredictable. Verse 10 tells us to look at the prophets, and James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, what was the role of a prophet? A prophet was to represent the will of God to the people of God. God would speak to the prophet, and the prophet would then be responsible to communicate whatever it is God wanted to say to the people. And more often than not, friends, the message he was saying to the people was not one they wanted to hear. They were usually disobedient. They were forgetting God, and God, through the prophet, was calling them back to humble themselves, to confess their sin, and come back and live in a life of obedience. Well, when the prophet spoke words that the people didn't want to hear, the results were at times not good for the prophet. In Jeremiah 38, 6, we read that Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. So they, after Jeremiah spoke the words of truth to the people, it says, so they took Jeremiah and they cast him into a cistern of Michal, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. They left him there to die until Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch went, eunuch, went and told the king what had happened. And the king said, oh boy, go get three men and pull Jeremiah out of there. Get him out of that situation. And maybe it was that the king knew you might not like what God says, but you don't mess with Jeremiah, his messenger. In, second, in 1 Kings 22, the prophet Micaiah spoke against King Ahab. And the king's men went and found Micaiah. Some commentators believe they roughed him up a little bit, went and found him, threw him in prison, and wouldn't give him hardly anything to eat or drink, a bread and water type of sustenance. The prophets were doing what was right, and they suffered. And James is saying, he's taking us then to our lives, and he's saying there are going to be times when you and I are obeying God. We are doing what is right, and even though we're doing what is right, we will be treated badly. Anybody have that happen? We're doing what is right, and the end result is that we're not getting the good we're giving. We will suffer, and in those times, we are not to retaliate. We are to be patient, knowing that God, who is compassionate and merciful, in due time will make all things right. See, one of the things that happens, friends, when we come to know God, God does an interior change. So we begin to relate to difficult situ situations, not in a selfish way, but in the way that is representative of the fact that God, the sovereign God who is in control, is guiding and directing and creating with us, within us the character so that we don't have to get frustrated. We can simply respond in calmness because what? Because our God reigns, because He is sovereign, because He is in control of all things, and He has promised 
to take care of us. Number three, we are to be patient when my problems are unexplainable. The story of Job in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Friends, there are going to be times when suffering comes upon you, and you are going to think what is going on here. In fact, your suffering will seem so out of place. You're following in God. You're following God. You're in touch with and using your gifts. You are confessing your sins, and the fir- you are the first one to help others out. And out of the blue, problems, struggles, and crisis come into your life, and James James is saying, look at Job. He was the most righteous man in all the world. In fact, he was so spiritually sensitive that whenever his children had a party, he went out and had a sacrifice just in case during that party one of them sinned. He was in tune with God. He was understanding what a relationship with God meant. And in the midst of this, in the midst of all these problems where he loses his wealth, his family, his health was taken from him. And what does he say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Friends, you and I do not always know why problems come, but we are to know something else. We are to know our God. The last part of verse 11 says that God has a purpose. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And not only is he sovereign and he is in control of all things, he is a good, he is a compassionate and merciful God. When life falls apart, we are to come together. When life falls apart, you and I are to come together We are to remember our God, and we say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. See, every time, friends, you and I have a problem, a challenge, a difficulty that comes into our life, and we don't understand it, it is an opportunity for you and I to say, God, thank you for this. Would you grow my patience? And you know why we say that? Because we know the end of the book. We know the story. We know that even things seem to be in chaos, that we have a God who is stable and secure and cares for us, and he is large and in charge, and he can do it. Now, why should we be patient? Next, we are patient because, number one, the second section, God is in control, James 5.8. How many of us meditate anywhere regularly on the fact that God's in control. Many of us, if, and myself included, I begin, I think more often than not about the things that aren't in control. How am I going to do this? How am I going to solve this? How do I bring this back together? And in, John, in James 5, verse 8, it says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Phillips translation says, so you must be patient, resting your hearts on the ultimate certainty, the Lord's coming is very near. You and I, as God's children, are to embrace the reality that God is coming back soon. I was listening to David Jeremiah this week, and he has mentioned more than once based on what is happening around the world, that he would not be surprised to see Christ return even while he is yet alive. We see in, our, in the news every day events pointing to the return of Christ. We see Russia, Iran, and Turkey aligning themselves in order to someday invade Israel. We see patterns of weather, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, also indicators that the coming of Christ is now nearer than ever. We see that many Christians are being persecuted, that that is at an all-time high. People are reacting and rebelling against those who claim the name of Christ. And I believe that is happening because the devil knows he's defeated. He is instilling in the people that don't know Christ the same feeling, and they're reacting out in anger. And we see it in our culture, even in our country. It will probably not be that long before we are going to sense 
persecution and rejection, and we're already experiencing it in many ways, the morals we hold to are being held up as lies and no longer acceptable within our culture. And there is violence, and there is lying, and there is cynicism like we have probably never, ever seen in our country. So what are we to do? James says, remember, the coming of our Lord is soon. So what do we need to do? Three things. They're not on your outline, but let me give you three things we're to do to prepare for the Lord's coming. Number one, we are to be prepared. Be prepared. Know the signs. Look what's happening. Be aware of how God is bringing all things to a conclusion. Number one, be aware. Number two, be pure. Rid yourself of all sin and let our lives, the way we live our lives. Friends, if you want evidence uh, that you're a Christian, obey God. Do what he says. Simply obey him. And your life will begin to shine as an illustration of your purity. We are to be pure. And thirdly, we are to be proclaimers. Give testimony of who Jesus is and how to have a personal relationship with him. We are to be pure. We are to be prepared, and we are to be proclaimers. The second reason we're to be patient is because God blesses those who are patient. Now, all of us want to be blessed by God, and here he's telling us, if you want a blessing by God, here's a quick way you can get a blessing. Be patient. Verse 11, the first part says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Steadfast slash patient. To be blessed means having recognized Having it being recognized that God's hand is upon us. The patient, the steadfast, are considered blessings. The patient, the steadfast, are considered blessed because of what others see when they, res- when they see in our lives how we handle difficulties. Oswald Chambers, a couple weeks ago in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, made this state. He says that the Christian is the one who is to be stable when all the world is falling apart. He is the, we are the ones that people are to be able to go to when everything else is in chaos. Why? Because we know our God. There is peace. There is security. There is hope. There is blessing on the lives of those who know God and who are patient. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? James says that when we stand firm, when those around us are falling apart, that our experience will be one of blessing. It seems to me that James is referring to what an individual experiences. When you and I experience opposition, when we experience suffering, and, and we are able to be calm and firm in the midst of this problem, it's like the acceptance of suffering that comes with, it's like we accept that suffering and problems come with being a disciple and we've been prepared for it. Now to rephrase this, to put it in a smaller package, again, is simply this. When we know our God, when we are growing in our relationship with God, the natural outgrowth of that relationship, of our knowing and growing in God, is that we have an inner peace and security that stabilizes us, that firms us, that allows us to have peace within, in situations where before we knew God, we ended up being flustered. To be blessed also means to be accepted. During the 19th century, nearly 500 British charitable organizations were formed. There was a huge need. And at least three-quarters of these organizations, charitable organizations, were evangelical, evangelistic in their approach. William Wilberforce devoted his entire career to the abolition of slavery. Others took up the cause of debtor's prison, where people were thrown in prison because they couldn't pay the money, and of course it just got worse, and over 14,000 people were were released from prison based on the work people did to show how unjust that was. 
Other people led crusades dealing with improper housing, education, an education system that was only helping a few, child labor, public immorality, and drunkenness. And during this time, William Booth used to stroll through the slums of London, the east side of London. And he noticed that every fifth building was a pub where men would loiter all day, drinking away their family's livelihood. Appalled at what he saw, William Booth opened the Christian mission in 1865. And his goal of opening this mission was to serve those on London's east side, the slum area, to serve the down and outers, the people that other Christians were ignoring. And when traditional churches and denominations frowned upon Booth's ministry, did he give up? Did he get discouraged? No, he opened a church called the Salvation Army. And he said that he began attracting people and people came to know Jesus and he called these individuals trophies of grace. People who desperately needed Christ, Christ filled their life, they changed their lives, he changed their lives and they became an example of what God's grace can do in the life of someone who is humble and wants to receive from God and realizes that they can't fix themselves. And when I read that story, I wonder who was more blessed. Were the people more blessed who was able to encounter Jesus and have their lives changed, a new vision, or a new hope? You bet they were blessed. But you know who else was blessed? William Booth and all those that worked with him were blessed as they saw God bless their efforts and change lives. See, being blessed takes many forms, my friend. God knows how to bless you. He knows how to bless me. In the Bible, we see a book filled with God's many expressions of blessing. The woman caught in adultery, who was not only spared death, but found new life. Zacchaeus, who found blessing by giving away of much of what he had gained illegally. Or maybe it was the blind Bartimaeus, who called out to Jesus while others told him to shut up, and he found not only sight, but a new vision of what his life can be. Friends, when we this is it. God knows you and he knows me so well that he knows how we need to be blessed. He knows what you need, what blessing you need in your life. And when we are patient, when we say, God, I'm here for you, what God does is he forms blessings, especially for you, especially for me, to let us know that he notices us, that he cares. Number three, we are to be patient because God is compassionate and merciful. The last part of verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, James uses the last part of verse 11 to explain at least in part who God is. And he says, God is compassionate and he is merciful. Mercy and compassion mean that God has time for us. Have you ever thought of it that way? God being merciful and God being compassionate means that he has time for you and he has time for me. We are not a burden, we are not an inconvenience to God. Let me illustrate. A few years ago, Princeton University did a, an experiment that was inspired by a Bible story. And in their study, they used a group of seminary students and these seminarians were interviewed and asked why they wanted to go into long, lifetime ministry. And there were a variety, of in, a variety of reasons given, but basically the reasons boiled down to the fact that they wanted to help others, they wanted to care for people, they wanted their help to be practical. So then what the researchers did, they asked these seminarians to prepare a short sermon. And half of them were to prepare a sermon on the, on the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story, there's a man beat up, two religious people leave 
leave him laying, and a Samaritan comes and bandages up his wounds and take him to an inn where he can be cared for. So they were to prepare a sermon on this story and the other half on another topic. And finally, after they did their sermon, they prepared it there after they were interviewed, they were told that they needed to go to another building and present the sermon. Well, along the way, the researchers had strategically positioned an actor in an alley to play the part of the man who was mugged in the story that Jesus told. He was slumped over and groaning loud enough for passerbys to hear and see and notice here is a dude in need. Well, the researchers hypothesized they thought the result would be that those who went into ministry to help people and who had just prepared a sermon on the Good Samaritan would be the most likely to help, but they found that that was not the case. Just before the seminarians left to give their sermon, the researcher would tell them one of two things. To some, he said, you're late. They were expecting you a few minutes ago. You had better hurry. To the others, they said, you're early. You know, they're not expecting you for a little bit of time. So why don't you just take your time and head on over to the other building? The reality, this is what happened. Only 10% of the seminarians who were in a hurry stopped to help while 63% of those who weren't in a hurry stopped to help. In several cases, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried to give his sermon on the story of the Good Samaritan. What did the researchers conclude? They stated it didn't matter whether or not someone wanted to help people or whether someone had just read and prepared a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. The only thing that matters was this. Were they in a hurry? You know, when I read that and I look at the pace of my life and the pace of our culture, and I remember what I've read from Dallas Willard even a few weeks ago that I shared last week. He said, if you want to grow in your relationship with God, you have to ruthlessly eliminate worry from your life or hurry from your life. Because if you're hurrying, not only can't you, you don't hear God, but you can't see the opportunities that literally God can lay at our feet. But contrast that to this. Our Jesus is compassionate and he is filled with mercy. He he is not in a hurry. He has never been in a hurry. He has always been about his father's business and he has time for you. He has time for you and he has time for me. Next on your sermon outline, what can I do to be patient? To be patient, number one, I will wait expectantly. Psalm 130 verse 5 from the Living Bible says, that is why I wait expectantly, trusting God to help for he has promised. When we are needing to be patient, God's call for us is that we wait expecting God to show up to respond, to care for us, and to sustain us. God, I'm waiting. I need this to happen. I don't know if I can handle. But what we say, we expect God to show up. We expect God to meet our needs. We expect expect God to somehow engage himself in our life. Daniel 11.32 says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. When we wait expectantly, we are standing firm on what we know God to be, who we know God to be, that he is merciful and then he is compassionate. We also Stand firm on what we believe, that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He is aware and he is involved. And then we take action. 
affirming what God has called us to do, expecting him to intervene, intersect or interrupt whatever is happening in our life. We look for God. We have our eyes open. God, where are you going to show up? What are you going to do? Are you going to give me more strength? How are you going to handle this situation? Number two, to be patient, I will wait without grumbling. Now, isn't that fun that James put that in there? In verse 9, he says, do not grumble against another brother so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In this verse, James seems to be identifying the fact that when you and I are not at our best, when we are stressed out, when we are overwhelmed, when we are trying to figure things out, when we are not at peace, when we are struggling, that there is a more of a tendency for us to grumble and complain. And James is saying, when you are stressed out, that is the time when you need to pay special attention to how you treat people. I wonder what would have happened Tuesday night when I got home from the trustee meeting if before I went in the house, I just sat in the car for a moment and I said, Barry, you're not in your best form tonight. You were tired, you're worn out, you're not feeling real well. So when you walk through that door, you need to cherish your wife. You need to, you need to live with her as a gift that she is. Friends, if I would have taken that time and I would have slowed down, I would not have had to get out of bed later because I wouldn't have done the stupid thing I did. We are to wait without grumbling. We are to be aware of our weaknesses, of our cracks, and say, God, I know I'm weak. I know I'm tired. So I'm going to put a little extra effort. I'm going to put a little extra consciousness. I'm going to ask God for a little more of your grace to be the person you want me to be so that I might not dishonor you because why? The judge is at the door. And when the judge comes to the door, I want to receive a condemnation not have him identify an attitude or behavior in my life that I need to change because I'm being disobedient. We are to watch and to treat people well and to be aware that our God is able to give us what we need. Number three, I will be patient. To be patient, I will wait confidently. Verse 11 says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Do you know, friends, that the Bible says that nothing can stand in the way of the purpose of God? Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in the minds of a man. Friend, we see that in our culture so much right now. We see this group having a plan. We see another group having a plan, and we think we know our plan. And the bottom line says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will prevail. And friends, you can put your stock on that statement. God will not be thwarted. His will will be done. And the issue is, how will we stand? How will we respond in the situations where we have to claim this promise and believe this truth. God's purpose for you, his child, cannot be thwarted when we're seeking him and living for him with humility and obedience. And number four, I will be patient, or to be patient, I will wait truthfully and with integrity. Listen to verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James seems to be addressing two important character traits in this, in this one verse. First, he is admonishing us to be truth tellers, not to lie. Friend, it's so easy at times, maybe we don't lie, but we just don't tell the whole truth, Right? We need to be truth tellers. We live in a culture where in politics and in other aspects of our society, lying is not even seen anymore as a moral issue. It is accepted as a part of life. And God says that is not to be true of us as his people. If we bear the name of Jesus, we are to tell the truth. Several years ago, the UPI 
wire carried this prayer by Reverend Fred Holloman, who was chaplain at the Kansas Senate. Now, he stood up before the opening of the Senate in Kansas, and he prayed this prayer. Listen to what he prayed. Omniscient Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing, and the other side just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we'd like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. See, sometimes we live in a culture where truth is an option. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of a follower of Jesus is that we tell the truth, and when it's hard to tell the truth, we simply make sure we tell the truth with love. Number two, we are to be people of integrity. The last part of verse 12 says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under the condemnation. Now, the first part also says, do not swear, brothers, by heaven or by earth. And see, some people will say, well, I'm telling the truth, I swear by this. And, and James is saying there should be none of that for God's people. In other words, our integrity should be so obvious that when we say yes, people know we mean yes. When we say no, we don't need any further explanation. We don't have to say anything more, maybe a handshake to reaffirm, but we are to be people that people can count on, individuals, men and women of integrity, where we not only tell the truth, but we keep our word. Tell the truth and live with truth. Men and women who follow the will of God as they obey the, obey the word of God. It was a typical night in a quiet neighborhood in Washington, D.C. A pedestrian was walking down the sidewalk when suddenly he was attacked by a young man who beat him and wanted to take his wallet. And this robbery, unfortunately, was typical of this area in Washington. But then something untypical happened. A boy riding his bike began pedaling up and down the street yelling, robbery, robbery. Neighbors stopped what they were doing and rushed to help. A man was taking groceries out of his car. He dropped them and ran over. Others poured out of their homes, dressed in pajamas and bathrobes. In minutes, the mugger was pinned against the car under a pile of angry citizens who held him until the police arrived. The local police captain, when hearing what had happened, said this, this is a real community. They got involved and they took action. Friends, when we come to church on Sunday morning, I trust that you're not coming simply because it's what you do on Sunday. I trust that when you come on Sunday morning, you're coming to give God praise for His graciousness to you. You're giving to affirm His goodness. You're coming on a Sunday morning to be reminded of God's Word and to learn truth that will help you and help me be more conformed to His image, to help us live lives that are directed by God, thereby receiving what? The blessing of God. And when we come together, we come together as a spiritual family. Just take a moment. I want you just to look around. Please do that. Just look around. Turn around from where you are. Look at the other people who are here. See, we are not to be people who just come in on Sunday morning and then leave. God has called us to be formed and shaped into a family. We are to be the church, a unique body of believers, men and women who come, are committed to Jesus as Savior and to living our life in a way that honors Him. And we are to care for each other. We are to support each other. We are to be active with each other. I was so encouraged this week. We had one of our senior members, uh, a family, a husband and wife, who um, had a mover back out on them. And they called me and said, hey, uh, our family, we've got some health issues in our family. We have our mover backed out. Could the men of the church help? And I called Trent, and Trent said, I got it. 
And I heard later that that evening, 15 of our men showed up to help this couple move. That's what it means. We're being the church. We're being a family. We're being people that care for each other and willing to get out of our way. So that care is not simply we claim, but it's evidenced by how we live our lives. We are too are to be people who are involved and take action. Not to watch what happens, not to wonder what happened. We are to be patient. We are to refuse to grumble. And we are to act as a people we were saved to become. As Daniel said in chapter 11, verse 32, the people who know their God will stand firm. No matter what the struggle, no matter what the problem, we will stand firm. And we will take the action God leads us to take. We will be his people. We will be his family. We will be his church. And the world will notice. And they will say, look how they love each other. And we will be a drawing force for people who are hungry to hear the redeeming words of Jesus.